Well, remain standing, and that beginning of that song says how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. We're going to open up that foundation of our faith, God's word, this morning. Let me have you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 13 this morning. Romans 13, and we'll read verses 1 through 7 again this morning. We began looking at this. In fact, we looked at the whole uh, passage last Sunday. We'll be making some other comments this morning from it. Romans 13, listen as I read verses 1 through 7, and let us uh, remember that this is God's word to us, his inerrant authoritative word to us. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who takes that word and makes it effective in our hearts, who teaches us through the word. And we pray, Father, that your word and spirit would be active as we consider these things before us this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would give us humble hearts as we consider these things. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Keep your Bibles out, of course, as always. We're going to be talking again this morning about the Christian and the state, the relationship between... God's people and the civil government is an issue that has been around as long as there has been government and as long as there have been citizens of those governments. Back to the the very opening chapters of Genesis and the early chapters of human existence and the interest that people in the church show to these questions sort of ebbs and flows depending on the particular government in question depending on the actions of a government, the policies, the laws of those government. And as we looked at last week, when we looked at uh, these seven verses that Paul gives us here, we've, we've learned that there are good governments, there are bad governments, there are horrid governments. And in most of those situations, there have been Christians living under those civil authorities and have had to deal with the question of the relationship between themselves and those civil authorities and between the church and those authorities. There's a slightly different question. Those two questions are slightly different. And what we're looking at here is not so much the relationship between the church and the state 
as we are looking here this morning and in these verses at the relationship between Christians and the state. And while the Bible gives us many examples of how Christians have answered those questions, it actually gives us relatively little in the way of direct, specific instruction on the question. Fortunately for us, though, what it gives to us is very clear and very simple, as we looked at last week. We looked last Sunday and read this morning the most detailed and the most helpful passage in the Bible on this question. As Paul writes here, interestingly enough, to the church in Rome, the seat of, of one of the most important and arguably one of the most oppressive governments in relation to Christianity. The names of, of emperors of the Roman Empire read like a who's who's list of persecution against the church. Names like Claudius and Domitian and Trajan, Diocletian, and of course, the madman Nero. And as we saw last week, what Paul wrote, uh, he writes to them and he writes to us. And as we come sort of at a second pass at some of these things this morning, we're going to, to begin, as we wrap this up, with a quick review. As we look at the Christian and the state, specifically on the questions of obedience and disobedience to the civil authorities this morning. Our outline, very briefly, is this, and it's six points. You'll have to write quickly or you'll get, pick them up as we go back through. But it's first the command to obedience, secondly the question of obedience, third the limits of obedience, fourth the method of disobedience, five the results of disobedience, and that's the five things that we'll be looking at. I was originally going to have six, but we'll just have five this morning. Reformation, five points, you know, we'll, we'll stick with that. But first we want to look at a quick review of what we saw before as we look at the command to obedience. And again, this is just going to be a quick review. We're not going to go back through everything. Uh, if you want to know all that was said about this, jump online and watch last week's message. It's online if you'd like to do that. But Paul begins his very brief and simple treatment of this subject with these words in verse 1 of chapter 13. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And then at the end of the passage, he repeats that. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection to those authorities. And why? Why does Paul say that? Why must we be subject to these governing authorities? Well, Paul says in these verses that it is because God is the one who established them. And he established them as a part of the order that he has put into his creation and into this world. He established civil governments as an authority. And so every government, good or evil, occupies a place ordained by God. The civil authorities, Paul said, are God's servant. They are God's servant to approve good and to punish evil. As verse 4 says, as the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. We learned last week that none of them are perfect. Some, many, are downright horrific. And those magistrates, 
over those governments who ruled in ungodly ways will be judged for their sin in not carrying out this responsibility appropriately. But Paul, in all of the seven verses that we looked at last week, does not give us an out based on the relative evil of the government. And those who resist the civil authorities that God has put in place resist, verse 2 tells us, what God has appointed and therefore are resisting God and will face judgment for that. He said, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. We are called to be good citizens. Christians are called to be the best citizens. We are called to pay our taxes. We are, verse 7 says, we are called to pay respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And in the context of these verses, that is pointing to the civil authorities, the, the governing authorities that God has put in place. So, as we saw last time, as we talked about last time, this is very simple. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Something that we saw is echoed in other places in the New Testament. Titus 3.1 says to, to Titus, Paul writes to Titus and says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.13 said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Government, we saw, is ordained by God to preserve life, to preserve order, to preserve peace, to serve as God's ministers, to preserve that order, to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil, and to use force to do so, and where appropriate, to even lawfully take the life of those who unlawfully take the life of another under the principle, the Old Testament principle, of an eye for an eye something that we need to be very careful to, to make a distinction, that is a principle for civil government, not for private citizens of the state. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said we are not to think individually of an eye for an eye. And Paul, back in chapter 12, verse 19, said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And as we learned last week, one of the ways that he pours out that vengeance on wrongdoers is through the agency of the civil authorities. That's what they are to do. And what we are to do is to be subject to them, to obey those authorities. That's the command to obedience. But it brings up the second thing we want to look at, and that is the question of obedience. All governments are God's servant. But as I said, none of them are great servants. And the activities and the policies and the law of government, each of them will be found to be on a, a scale, a, a continuum, um, a scale of authority I'm sorry, a scale of conformity to God's law. Even under common grace, they are to, to rule rightly. And as you start, say, on the good end of, of that scale, where a law 
accurately and fully reflects God's own law. Uh, Laws that we have in the state against murder, for example. And you begin to move towards the other end of that, you pass through a lot of areas. You pass through a lot of areas, and any government will, through areas of, of what we could call indifference. Speed limit laws. Uh, land use, housing, building codes, things like that. Some of those laws will make sense to different people. Some will make certain people, uh, they will be fine with it. Some people may not. We may agree with those laws, we may not. And we do need to understand that every law, every statute that places any restriction on you, which is practically any law, can be seen as taking away a little bit of your freedom, of your liberty, of your ability to do what you want. That's what laws do, right? They say, you can't do this. You must do this. But as a magistrate continues down that scale, continues down that that continuum, the question comes up, will they, will it ever reach a point where we as Christians must say this far and no farther? That's the big question. That's the question of obedience. According to Paul here in Romans 13, we are to obey the laws of the state, of the laws of the land, even if we personally dislike them or disagree with them. That's the whole point of Romans 13, 1 through 7. And it's supported by passages of Scripture, example from Scripture. One example comes from an unlikely place, Luke 2, uh, the record of the birth of Christ. Luke tells us that Joseph, upon hearing the mandate from the Roman Emperor Augustus, that everyone was to return to their hometown, drop what you're doing, go to your hometown to register for a census, Joseph, you'll remember, responded by saying, wait, I have a wife. My wife is nine months pregnant. It is unnecessary, it is stupid for me to load up everything, pack up the donkey, stop my work, put Mary on this donkey, travel 90 miles through the desert, a three-day journey, and through some very dangerous territory. So I am just not going to do that. Well, of course, he didn't say that, did he? We know that what he did was to go. But as he did, he carried signs along expressing his displeasure. And then I think it's the message translation, chanting, hey, hey, ho, ho, Caesar Augustus has got to go. No, he didn't do that either, did he? He went. He loaded everything up, put his business, closed his business up, and went. He probably didn't like it, but he went. And we are called to obey the government, nowhere it being added unless you personally disagree with the reasons or the restrictions or the laws. And that, if we're honest, all of us, that causes a problem for us. Because we do not like to be told what to do, especially if it doesn't make sense, especially if we don't like to do it. Especially as Americans, 
who, who are, are so enamored and rightly so with the freedoms that we have. It rubs against our internal sense of, of fairness. And it also rubs against our internal sense of rebellion to authority. That's not because we're Americans. That's because we're fallen people. None of us like to be told what to do. And that's an issue whether we're talking about the state or our boss at work or our parents or our elders at the church or God and his word. We bristle against being told what to do. And so this is a problem for us when Paul says, be subject to the governing authorities. Sometimes it's a problem for us because of our belief that we know what is best, that we know what is right. Other times, a law can can offend our sense of justice. You know, we sense when things are unfair or unjust or even oppressive, and we don't like to participate in things or to support things that strike us as unfair. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing until we combine it with our bent towards rebellion. So is there a limit? This question of obedience, what's the answer? Is there a point where we may disobey? That brings us to our third point, the limits of obedience. Is there a point where we may disobey? Well, the answer that the New Testament gives is no. That got your attention, I bet. You weren't expecting that answer. There is no point where we may disobey. But there is a point at which we must disobey. The teaching of Scripture is that if we may, we must. And if we must not, We may not. That's what Paul is saying. And once again, Scripture gives us examples where this line is crossed by governing authorities. Let me just mention a few. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 1, when the Israelites were increasing in number, We read that the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom, by the the way, was named Shifra and the other Puah, he says, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew children, women, and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. In Daniel 3, now if you grew up going to Sunday school, or if you're currently in Sunday school, as several on this side are, I see, you know this one. King Nebuchadnezzar has built this huge 90-foot-tall statue of gold, a statue of himself, and he commands that everyone, at a certain time when the trumpets are blown, that everyone is to fall down and worship this image that he made. But when the trumpet sounds... There are three of the Jews within the government that had positions who did not. Even when they were threatened then with death, a horrible death, they say, God may deliver us from you, God may not deliver us from you, but we will not worship this idolatrous image. 
the government had crossed that line. A little later in Daniel 6, Daniel himself is, is focused on as the civil authorities there passed a law that no one was allowed to pray to anyone other than to the king, the earthly king. Daniel, you remember, ignored that command, which ultimately resulted in him staying at the Red Lion Inn for a night. In the New Testament, let's focus on two incidents. They're very close together, both in the book of Acts. And it's, it's in these incidents that the Bible now gives us some explicit help, some explicit direction regarding the drawing of that line between must obey and must disobey. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are, are in the temple preaching Christ to the people when the authorities come upon them and arrest them. Now these are the, the temple police. This is not, technically these are not the civil authorities, but they're religious authorities. But in, under the Roman government in Israel, they were given broad authority and power so long as they didn't become a threat to the empirical authorities, they were allowed to act as civil authorities within the, the nation of Israel. And so they are arrested, Peter and John are arrested and brought before this court known as the Sanhedrin. They bring them before them and, and after they confer, they come and they decide that they are going to strictly warn Peter and John against that. And, then they, and they do so and then they let them go. So verse 18 of chapter 4 of the book of Acts says that they called them and charged them not to speak. That is, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And you know Peter's answer. He and John said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then the last one is in the very next chapter, chapter 5 of Acts. After being arrested again, this exchange takes place. It's in Acts chapter 5, verse 27, if you're hurrying to turn there. It says, and when they, that is the, the, the Sanhedrin, had brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. There's the exception. There is the line. It is evident here in Acts chapter 5. It is evident in all of those other examples that we saw. The line is drawn when obedience to the civil authorities and the laws smacks up against obedience to God, to his word, to his command, to his laws. When Caesar says, inconvenience yourself to come to Bethlehem to register, the Christian says, I'll do it. But when Pharaoh says, kill these babies, when the king says, worship this idol, when the decree is given, don't pray to God but to an earthly king, and when the powers that be say, don't preach Christ, we might add when the civil government says you cannot meet, you cannot sing as a church, our loyalty is then clear. 
The line has been crossed. The answer is clear, the same one that Peter gave. We must obey God rather than men. Notice, not we may, we must. Here's the principle. We, you and I, Christian, every person, Paul said in Romans 13.1, are to obey the civil magistrates, to obey the governing authorities, except if except when they either command you to do something that God forbids or they forbid you to do something that God commands. Now, I used to say when I would say that, I would say we are to obey the civil magistrates unless and until they command you to do something God forbids or forbid you to do something that God commands. But, but I found that I needed to alter that slightly. Instead of unless and until, it should be except if and when they command you in that way. And here's the difference. Even when the governing authority crosses that line in one of those two directions, that does not mean that we are then free to stop obeying the authorities that God has established. It simply means that we must, not may, but must, disobey that law, that directive. We must still obey the other laws of the land. Rebellion, disobedience, is always against a specific law, a specific decree, not against the government itself, who is still God's ordained, his instituted servant. So when Peter and John were told not to teach anymore in Jesus' name, they didn't say, well, that's it, we're not obeying you anymore. They said, in this, we can't obey. We must obey God rather than you. And do you remember from last week that I said that this is really not that difficult to understand, only to apply, only to obey? Well, the same is true here, really. When, when must we disobey a law of the land? When it comes directly into conflict, conflict with a law, a command of God explicitly, or by good and necessary inference taught in the scriptures, which is our highest authority. And rebellion is always against a specific law, a specific requirement. That is it as far as what Scripture teaches us. There is nothing in Scripture, there is nothing in our confessions, if you want to add that in, that says that we have the right to say, I don't like this law, I don't think it's a good law, therefore I won't obey it. We're not given that level of autonomy in the Scriptures. We must obey the law of the land until... It is demonstrably, or until they demonstrably, sorry, I'll try that again. Until they give a command, pass a law, enact a restriction that is demonstrably contrary to God's law. So again, that's not saying that we blindly obey the government, but that we must obey unless the light of Scripture reveals that we must not obey. Now some will say, well, what about conscience? Well, remember, Paul brought that up in Romans 13. We read it this morning. But Paul gave our conscience as one of the the very, in fact, the strongest reason that we must obey the governing authorities. Look at verse 5 of Romans 13. 
He says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Being subject to the governing authorities for fear of God's punishment if we don't is a valid reason, but it's not the only reason. It's not the strongest reason, especially for us as Christians. We don't simply obey God because we'll be punished if we don't, but we obey God and therefore we are to obey the civil authorities because it is proper for us to do so as Christians. We obey because our conscience has been trained by God's word to convince us from the inside that it's the right thing to do. And that is what Paul is saying here when he says be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath but also for the sake of conscience. Not only because of an outside compulsion, but also from an inside compulsion that that is the right thing to do. Our well-trained, properly functioning Christian conscience is an important faculty for every believer, but we need to note that our conscience never trumps Scripture. The Bible is over our conscience, and Scripture gives us this clear guide in this regard. But again, there are times, though certainly fewer than we might imagine, when we must disobey an ungodly law or command from the government. And we must obey, again, and this is a good way to look at this, if we may disobey, we must disobey. When you're wading through the swamp of considering these things, and this is difficult stuff to apply, We keep saying that. When you're wading through the swamp of laws and and mandates and such, ask yourself this. As a Christian, under the scripture as my ultimate authority, can I say that I must disobey this directive of my government? If the answer is no, then the answer to the question, may I disobey it, is also no. That's the teaching of the scriptures. It's not me. You know, I have as much trouble with these things at times as any of you. So if the answer is not that we must disobey, the answer to may we disobey is also no. But if the answer is yes, then another question comes up. And that is, how should I disobey? How should I disobey the governing authorities? And remember, as we saw last week, this idea of governing authorities, as Paul uses it, goes from the national, federal level all the way down to the local magistrates and those who are on the streets enforcing those laws. Remember, 1 Peter 2.13 said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who are doing evil. But how should we disobey? That's our next question, the method of disobedience. And here we really have an overarching principle and, and some guidance based on our, those principles and how it can apply in our situation. The principle is again derived from the direct teaching and the example of necessary disobedience by God's people recorded in the scripture. The principle is that even when our hand is forced, as it were, even when the government steps over that line, We are to to disobey in a respectful way. 
Paul says in verse 7, there at the end of, of our passage from verse, uh, in Romans 13, pay to all what is owed to them. And then at the end he says, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor. And respect and honor is owed to those whom God has by his providence placed over us, even if we need to disobey them. And we have examples of this, really in all of those earlier examples that we brought up from the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'll mention just one of each as we move along here. In Daniel 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's image, they still, even in their rebellion, even in their refusal, they were respectful to the king. And they use, continue to use addresses of respect. O Nebuchadnezzar, the text says. O king. Those are addresses of, of respect. They say that and then they simply, respectfully say, not going to do it. Can't do it. Then in Acts 4 and 5, again, Peter and the apostles don't, return with with placards and bullhorns but they say whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard and in Acts 5 it says we must obey God rather than men matter of fact no no equivocation no no groveling no anger no rebellion no insurrection Simply a statement, we must obey God rather than men, and you do it. We as Christians, again, are to be good citizens, even when we must be disobedient. That doesn't mean that we have to just grin and bear everything the government decides to impose on us as citizens, even if we don't reach that point of God's word coming into conflict with the law of the land. We... If an issue does not rise to the point of necessary refusal, and, and remember, under these, this understanding, very few things will, but we still have the opportunity, we still have the biblical permission to act within the laws of the land to express disagreement. And we have those, by God's grace, by his providence, we have those in our country in spades. Vote is one. Two, get involved in politics yourself. The church has no place in politics. Its concerns are different. But individual Christians certainly have the right to be involved. Carefully, as Christians, you know, as long as your involvement is always in submission to God and his word and utilizes biblical moral standards and means to bring about the desired ends. And remembering that we can work for outward change in our society and order in our society, but we must remember that true, lasting, monumental change is not, to be brought, is not able to be brought about by politics, but by regeneration of the people of our country. Revival, not revolt, is the means of achieving peace in our land. 
So vote, get involved in politics. In our country, again, we are given in our Constitution the right to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. When we do that, we are not stepping outside of what Paul says and being rebellious against the government. Even when we're disagreeing and letting our disagreement be known, we are acting within the structure of our founding documents. Fourth, in extreme cases, there are things that we don't have time to talk about here, like the doctrine of lesser magistrates that can be a means of addressing these things. All of those are perfectly legitimate means of expressing displeasure. What we don't have, beloved, is the right to say, because I don't like this law, or I don't think it's a good law, that I don't and won't obey it. Again, unless it is demonstrably contrary to God's law. And if there comes a point where we must respectfully, in a godly way, say we must obey God rather than men, we need to be willing to bear, and this is our next brief point, to bear the consequences of disobedience. We must not assume, we cannot think that because we would be in the right when we take a stand against a law that is blatantly contrary to God's law, that God will make such civil disobedience a cakewalk. But there may be, there will be consequences. And if we are taking that stand within those, that narrow window where we are to do that, and again, we're not where we may, where we must, we must be ready also and willing to bear those consequences. Again, the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, our children know when they, when they made the decision to disobey, which to them was a no-brainer, right? They were fully prepared to accept the consequences that they faced. And what were those consequences? Being thrown into the fiery furnace. Huh? And they said, God may deliver us, and he may not, but we will not bow. How that works out, he, they said, is up to God. But we cannot, and therefore we will not. One that we didn't mention here, Esther. In her attempts to save her people from being slaughtered, went to the king. No, no, against the law to go to the king. She said, I'll do it anyway. And she said, if I perish, I perish. Willing to face the consequences. So was Daniel when he decided he needed to keep praying to God in disobedience to the king's decree. He faced the consequences. For us, it may cost us. If it comes to that point, it may cost us our promotion. It may cost us our job, our livelihood. It may cost us financially. It may cost us our freedom. It may cost us our lives. So before taking such a stand, we had better be sure that we are taking that stand because our loyalty to God and His law outweighs our loyalty to the state and theirs. So what we've seen last week and this week, is that there are biblical principles governing the relationship between the Christian and the state. Again, easy ones to understand, 
And as so often as people who continue to struggle with sin, it is sometimes difficult to accept. But God has made it pretty clear. It remains, though, difficult to apply, especially when we believe that a law is impeding our freedom. But remember that practically every law impedes your freedom. And the difficulty of application also can lead to it being difficult to differ with other people, other Christians, on those things, or at least to differ in a way that Christians should. We should never let these discussions, these things, separate us as Christians. But between last week and this morning, we've seen the principles and the purpose of the civil magistrate and we have seen our biblical duty in regard to those magistrates, and we have seen the one exception that the New Testament gives to the general command to be subject to the governing authority. So, beloved, we have the tools to work through the individual cases that come before us. And I know that that some of you would probably like to have me click through some of these and give the answers to apply these principles to the myriad of, of situations, but I'm not going to. Now, if you want to come talk to me in person, I'm always available to help anyone work through these issues by applying these guidelines anytime. But as we close, let's just take one. Let's take one situation and close by applying these things here. I mentioned it earlier today. Now, this is slightly different because this this is regarding the church and the state. Does anyone remember what happened back in March of 2020? Of course you do. Uh, The shutdown happened. Everything stopped. Everything stopped in the face of an, at the time mysterious, deadly, rapidly spreading disease for which there was very little treatment and about which very little was known. And among the things that were being shut down were churches. And in the early days of that, we all complied with that for a short period of time because of, those, because of the health situation. We didn't know. But later, as things began to open back up, essential things, the church particularly here in California I'm talking about, was left off that list of essential things and was mandated to stay shut down by the government. Many churches, ours included, began to see a clear singling out of churches. We were told we couldn't meet. A little later we were told you can meet but you can't sing. And at that point it was clear that the civil magistrate was simply using the coronavirus as a tool to keep churches from meeting, from singing. Two things that God commands us to do. And by the very nature of what the church is, could not continue to be obeyed. And so using these very principles, our church took a stand. In fact, here's the statement that our session made. We sent it out to everybody. 
It says, your session has concluded that the current situation in our state in which churches are still forbidden to meet in person for worship services while other businesses and venues which are no better able to take precautions to prevent the spread of the coronavirus are permitted to resume resume operations constitutes an overreach by the civil authority and that we in good conscience and submission to both the scriptures, Hebrews 10.25 for example, and the nature of the church as a called out and gathered together communion of saints can no longer continue in obedience to that authority and that therefore we will resume meeting together for corporate worship on the Lord's Day, June 7, 2020. And we did. Many other churches made similar statements at that point where it was clear. There were other things that we didn't make clear statements on because there were things that did not pass that muster of being contrary to God's word. As I say, many other churches made similar statements. And some willingly faced, and in many cases fought, the consequences of those actions using the legally allowed through our governing authorities the ways that we have to fight these things. But this is the kind of of biblical and civil calculation that each of us need to make when considering when to be disobedient to the civil magistrate. This doesn't make it easy to ferret out in every situation. And such things, though, where we may and must, those are the exception. Most of the things that we don't want to do or submit to the governing authorities are, I think, more often because of one of those other reasons. And we need to analyze that. As Paul and Peter and James said, we are to render that obedience to the governing authorities, recognizing them as receiving that authority to govern from God. But always being, beloved, very clear that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. And the rules and the laws of that kingdom take priority. And when the two clash, our allegiance is clear. We must obey God rather than men. And so let us strive to be good citizens in all of those situations that we face. And let us remember to rely upon God who has saved us by his grace and he is guiding this world along by his his decree through his providence. Let us seek to do what his word instructs us to do. And to that let us say, Let's pray. Father, we, we know and freely confess that in, in this particular time, in our particular situation, in the things that are going on, these are difficult words. But Lord, we thank you that by your good providence, as we're going through Romans, that we have hit upon chapter 13 when we have. And we pray that you would have used this, that you would use these words, that you would use the teaching of your scripture to instruct us, to grow us. We pray, Father, that even where we may disagree on things, that you would give us charity towards one another. And we pray that you would help us to be students of your word. We pray that you would bless us as we are. We thank you, Father, uh, for the freedoms that we have in this nation. And though there is much wrong with this nation, Lord, we thank you 
for by your grace, by your providence, putting us here and help us to be faithful servants of you as we are servants within this structure. And we ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen.